Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, Matt Kelly looks at the recent PCAOB proposal on auditors. Karen Woody looks at the lawsuit comment without merit as an actionable securities claim. Jay Rosen on the International Anti-Corruption Court. Jonathan Marks talks about issues facing auditors in 2023. Shoutouts and rants on this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to a special live edition of Everything Compliance. We have the quartet of Jay Rosen, Karen Woody, Matt Kelly, and Jonathan Marks. Gentlemen and lady, welcome back. Tom. Hey, Tom. We are going to start on the East Coast with Matt Kelly. Matt, you have been thinking, looking, and talking about the PCAOB proposal on expansion of audit requirements Anything new or different, or have you looked at the comments, and where do you see this going? Oh, man, we have so much that's new and different about this proposal. This is one of those important and somewhat rare crossover issues that will affect compliance and internal audit and corporate legal officers probably a lot. And so they all should be paying attention to this. Here's the backstory is that two months ago, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board proposed a new standard that would require audit firms to look much more aggressively for legal and compliance violations at their client companies. This is called the non-compliance with legal, with non-compliance with compliance and legal requirements, I think. So it's known as the NOCLAR proposal. And it was out for comment for two months and the comment period closed in early August. But there is a lot of controversy around this. And here's why. The audit firms believe, or at least they claim, that this is a terrible idea because it will put the audit firms in the position of having to act like lawyers, which auditors are not well suited to do because they are not lawyers. But the proposed standard would say that audit firms need to look for any compliance or legal violation that might lead to a material impact to the financial statements. Think about that. If you have to look for compliance violations that might be material, then you need to first know what is the full range of legal and compliance obligations my client has. So I can then pare that down to the list that would be material if it's a violation. For a large multinational company, that's going to be a huge a number of potential issues that an auditor would have to check out. Then they would have to figure out, okay, is this violation I'm thinking of, is this for real or not? So they might need to investigate it. That sets up the prospect of the audit firm perhaps acting as like a shadow compliance function for the client where the auditors are going to kind of wander around the enterprise looking for compliance violations all on their own which might give some friction to the compliance officer because that is your job to wander around the enterprise looking for potential compliance violations. And compliance officers actually know what they're doing, which is more than we might say for a lot of audit firms. 
Then comes the even more tricky part is, let's say, an audit firm finds a violation. Even before that, one of the proposed requirements is that the external auditor is supposed to go and ask the internal auditor, do you know of any potential compliance violations? Either the internal auditor don't, and the auditor finds one, they have to report that to the board and the audit committee, and now the internal auditor looks bad because external found something that you didn't or what if the internal auditor does know about a violation are you supposed to lie and say nope we don't know anything that's a terrible idea are you supposed to say oh yeah we know about this legal violation because then the general counsel is going to haul out the internal auditor probably have him shot in the parking lot for disclosing something to an outside party This is one of those ideas that is a really great in theory because I am all for more investor protection and trying to root out things that might cause investors harm and lose value. But in practice, this is really bogs down in a lot of details about how does this work? And I'm not sure that we know. Tom, the other interesting part is that you do see these sort of three different camps, maybe four different camps. The external auditors are very ambivalent about this. And let's remember, they're the ones who actually would make a lot of money because they'd have a lot more work and somebody has to pay for it. So audit fees would go up through the roof. Even the audit firms are like, whoa, we don't know how to do this. This is probably a bad idea. You have the general counsels who have already been submitting many comments saying, this is a terrible idea. This jeopardizes attorney-client privilege. We don't want anything to do with this. You have chief compliance officers who actually had written in a fair number of them to say that if the PCAOB proceeds with this proposal, it would be better for them to require that the auditor talk to the chief compliance officer and go to the board board of directors and ask them about the state of the compliance program. So the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics, that is its formal view. It doesn't actually say, yes, this is a good idea, we should do it, or no, we don't. They haven't taken a firm view on if we should do this, but more that if the PCAOB does, this is how we'd like it tweaked to involve the compliance team more. And then we also have a smattering of good governance people who do point out that auditors are supposed to be looking for client misconduct already. So are we really making a mountain out of a molehill here? They should just go ahead and do it. I'm struck that we have so many voices taking starkly different views on this. It's worth noting that of the five PCAOB board members who proposed this, two of them voted against it. And they were the two who do have auditing experience who both flat out said to the other three board members, you don't know what you're talking about because you aren't auditors. We can't do this. The audit firm is, they're not equipped for it. I don't know when we might see a final version of this. I don't know what the final version might look like. I And guessing from the comments the PCAOB has received, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce will probably file a lawsuit over a final version before they manage to get it posted online. They're that against it. Tremendously controversial idea, a lot of different issues, and sort of stuff that makes for fascinating discussion. Jonathan Marks, you have a question or comment for Matt? Yeah, and Karen are mentioning some of the things that I wanted to ask Matt, and I had a conversation with Tom about yesterday. I think materiality now comes into play more than ever. What is material and what isn't material? And I know that over the years, there's always been, that's, as Karen put it, the nebulous, I'm not, I don't want to paraphrase anything that she said, but it's this nebulous concept. It's this gelatinous type of thing. What is material? 
the auditor's judgment really does come into play here. I don't know. I do know that the, I think some of the bigger firms are challenging all of this because to your point, they claim that they're not equipped or don't have the skill sets. I'm, I'm concerned about attorney-client privilege in some of this as well. And so I think there's a lot of things that need to be worked out. But I think what they're trying to do, I think the messaging that they're trying to deliver is that there's there are other ancillary things that are going on. Much of Sarbanes-Oxley is internal controls over financial reporting. And so you have this whole concept of a control framework, right, that could impact the financial statements taken as a whole. I think that now when you look at the regulatory landscape and things going on on the global stage with regards to sanctions, with regards to other regulations, with regards to things like governmental programs, compliance with governmental programs like the CARES Act and things like that, I think that poses a lot more risk. I think what they're trying to say, and maybe it's just a different way of saying it, is that you need to understand compliance now more than ever. I'm a conspiracy theorist by nature, so I'll go through this one more time. As I mentioned to Tom yesterday, I think they're working their way backwards. I think we've, I think compliance and risk are things that they're pushing now more than ever to be evaluated. And I think that the governance component is next on the stage here as well. But I do think I'm really pontificating rather than asking a question. But Matt, I really want to ask you, when you fundamentally look at this, knowing what we know and knowing what the regulatory landscape is today, is it really fair for the investors to really know about these things? Because at the end of the day, aren't we really supposed to be protecting the investors, specifically related to publicly traded companies? And how can we be doing that effectively, knowing what we know today about all the compliance failures and how those potentially impacted the organization? Maybe they didn't impact the organization, and then it goes full circle back to materiality. So I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but maybe you can fill in the blanks. would probably wind up rambling myself because I think you brought up a lot of good points that nobody quite knows the answer to. We can start with materiality. And let's remember that most of the time, the auditors are going to say that, is it a material risk that will lead to restatement of financials? And most compliance violations, the answer is no, it's not. We've never had an FCPA violation lead to a, that one's. we've never had an FCPA violation lead to a restatement of financials. But are there qualitative materiality standards that investors would want to know about? For example, I don't think FCPA is the violation most companies would need to worry about. The most common compliance violation you're going to have is a privacy breach. Those usually aren't material either. But if you have four privacy breaches over the course of 18 months because your employees can't seem to get it through their heads about a phishing scandal, that sounds like a qualitatively material weakness in your cybersecurity program, even though there's no actual big loss. There's no financial restatement involved. And how many companies have a big privacy breach and four months later, their stock's still at an all-time high? Yeah. So how do we figure that out? I don't know. I'll stop there. But that's investors aren't wrong to say that we're constantly getting blindsided by compliance violations. Shouldn't an audit firm be catching that? Auditors aren't wrong to say we don't necessarily know how to do it. And then there are these bigger questions about materiality, I, which I'll leave to the law professors to answer. Karen, answer this for us. We don't know what's going on. That's what I, yeah, that's why they pay me the big bucks here. We'll figure it out at some point. I do just want to make sure the Kool Aid man didn't run through your glass door and that whatever was happening. I don't your- know. That, those, that was the guy pulling down with the 12 coconut custard pies. Wow. 
I'll go find that out afterwards. I'm afraid to look. Matt, let me pitch it back over to Jonathan, because we had a, a long chat about this yesterday, and we thought about, would the audit team have to expand? Would there, as Jerry Zach at the SEC E said, you need to have a compliance resource, or at least need to talk to your CO. Does audit now need a legal resource to do, as you said, we've got to get a handle on what regulations apply or what our highest legal risks are, as well as a CISO or chief technology officer to understand, have we had a breach? Do we have a team in place? And what's our data privacy obligations where we do work? Jonathan, is audit going to have to have all of those as a part of the team now under if this proposed reg goes through? I think that the one key thing is that you have people with the right level of skills that are on the audit team always, no matter what the issues are. But I think what this does is goes back to quality control and the professional practice groups in these organizations, especially the bigger firms, as to how are they going to be looking at these particular engagements? Because at the end of the day, if you look at what's the PCAOB is finding in some of these firms, a lot of this relates to quality control. I think it puts more onus now on the not only the audit team, but also the firms from a quality control perspective and a professional practices perspective to revisit all this. And again, at the end of the day, it's all about risk management. I'm sure there'll be audits that are much more risky, but I've been bantering for a very long time that, you know, under audits, when you're assessing fraud risk, why aren't people more readily reaching out to us and me. And up until recently, and kudos to my partners, a lot of them do reach out now and say, hey, we've identified this risk. What can we be doing more in order to potentially mitigate that or look at that from an audit perspective so as to not put ourselves in a joker's gambit going forward? Big, huge. If I had to give a shout out, I'd give a shout out to all those people that are thinking that way. I know that's a little bit premature, but I do think it does change the game a lot when it comes to having the folks on the team, it's not only landing the plane anymore, it's picking the right runway and making sure that, you know, you're going to the right gate. There's a lot of, there's a, it's the ground crew, it's the pilot, it's all the people on board and it's all the support staff. And from an audit perspective, whereby a while ago, people didn't really think about engaging experts to help them along the way. I think that mentality is changing and it has changed. Matt, do you have a comment? But just one thing, since Jonathan was talking a lot about the audit firms and how this might impact them, I've had several conversations with audit firm partners at the big four who ex specifically and expressly said, this is why I am leaving the big four. This is why I'm going to take my retirement package as soon as the firm offers one, because they don't want to deal with this. And I also had two conversations with basically the heads of internal accounting and SC reporting at fairly large publicly traded companies who also were talking about the no clar deal saying, this is going to chase my audit for partners away. And I'm going to get saddled with a bunch of newbies who don't know what they're doing because the audit firms are getting smothered by the PCAOB. Now I can feel their pain. I can also still feel the pain of audit investors who are saying, how come auditors aren't really doing anything other than saying the financials look good. But uh, we have to keep in mind, this is going to put a lot of audit firms under pressure and a lot of the actual human beings at the firms are just going to say, peace out, I'm retiring. And what good is that doing? Because this is really hard and you need experienced people and they're all leaving in droves. And Matt, you bring up, I don't mean to jump in here real quick, but talent acquisition and talent management 
and able to get appropriate talent at that level at those firms right now, it's a it's not only a war, it's a crisis. Yeah. All right. Karen Woody, we had a case where the question arose of whether when a corporation says a lawsuit is without merit in a securities law filing, is that an actionable securities claim if the case is settled, goes to trial or otherwise has merit? Yeah, it's a great question. And I do appreciate the way you've teed it up because it seems very provocative. But when you get into the facts of what happened with the particular case that you're referencing, it gets a little bit not, I think, as sensational because it's pretty egregious what occurred. So let me just give a little background, backstory to this. This involves a case that's called the City of Fort Lauderdale Police and Firefighter Retirements, effectively the securities owners, the investors in this particular company, sued Pegasystems. And Pegasystems is a company, it develops software for things like customer relationship management, business processes, things like that but tech-based thing. And they allegedly, or actually not allegedly, they lost a major lawsuit against a competitor company called Apian, which is based just up the road for me in Virginia. The gist of the lawsuit between Apian and Pegasystems was that Apian accused Pegasystems of a conspiracy to essentially steal trade secrets. And what occurred was an, an employee or a government contractor, I should say, got access to the Apian systems and then they used it for Pegasystem or the Apian and they used it for Pegasystem, the classic. They had some sort of data breach, both from a contractor, then also certain employees at Pegasystem posed as potential customers of Apian to get into it. A very broad sort of computer fraud and abuse type case. I should say I had a case almost identical to this over 12 years ago. And what was ironic about that one is the way that the company had broken into their competitors was to put admin as the password and sign on. And so the question was whether or not that was just so obvious that it wasn't actually breaking in. But that's not what happened here. This was a much more nefarious scheme. There's people acting like certain potential fake companies to get access to the competitor software. This then, of course, goes to trial. It's a seven-week trial up in Fairfax, Virginia, and the jury awarded Apian a $2.04 billion damage award based on this misappropriating the trade secrets. Understandably, Pegasystem's stock at that point tanks. It's down, I think, 28% or something on the announcement of this massive record-breaking verdict. So that brings us to what we're going to talk about here, which is after a massive stock drop, there is, of course, the securities class action about this. And so what is the issue? What is the meat of this follow-on securities class action? And the gist of it is this, is that in February 2022, right, in the height of this litigation with APM Pegasystem, this big cases company, the CEO says, makes express and detailed mention of the trade secret litigation and says things like these, this, these allegations in the lawsuit are without merit. The company has strong defenses to the claims. The damages that were sought by APM were not supported by any legal standard and not supported by what they had assessed. And they even put some of these in the SEC filings, which directed the investors to the company's code of conduct that said the company would never use illegal or questionable means to acquire a competitor's trade circuit. So these these are the statements that plaintiffs now in the class action are like, that's not true. We know that's not true. But they have to 
clear the first stage here of pleading scienter, pleading all these things in order to get past the motion to dismiss. I should say at the outset that what happened here is that the court denied the defendant's motion to dismiss. So we're moving forward with this. And so there is apparently enough here for the plaintiffs to say, by the way, all those statements you made both in your code of conduct and that the CEO made were false. And you knowingly knew, you knew those were false when you made them. And just saying this trade secret litigation is without merit. The court here said, actually, no, I think the plaintiffs have sufficiently alleged that statement is not aligning with what you knew at the time. The CEO, when you said this, and when you told the SEC to refer to our code of conduct, you knew that wasn't true. And so, again, the court just says there's enough facts here in the complaint that raises enough of an inference of scienter, meaning you knew and you were purposely trying to be deceitful. All of this means that this is enough to go forward. And so, I get that it's a really cool headline. Oh, if you just say something's without merit, that gives rise to a securities claim. That would be interesting. But it turns out here there's a little more meat to it. And this, I think it's not surprising. You have a record-breaking $2 billion lawsuit that there's a lot going on with it. And then the follow-on is you know them pointing to, sure, there's a lot that you knew at the time was false. I actually think there are some segues to what Matt was saying. When you have more requirements to disclose, things required to say your auditors, this is clean, this is fine. This many more documented instances where eventually plaintiffs on the back end can say, you said that, you looked at your code of conduct and said this would never happen. And yet here we are, that can give rise to a follow-on securities action. So I think actually there will be a number of, like we saw with Activision, like we've seen with a number of these things, the, the puffery or the sort of whatever you say, even the Goldman case recently, there's enough here for them to have some real consequences. Like you really have to look closely at the statements they're making. I think this is a warning shot to attorneys, to the head of communications for companies that like, you better be aware of what you're saying. So even when you get there and say, no, no, that's a nonsense litigation. If you don't believe that when you make that statement, you should expose yourself to security litigation. So that's my take on that. I don't know if others have similar thoughts. Well, Karen, I have to ask you this as a law school professor. Matt has asked, what is scienter? I asked how it's pronounced. I know what it is. But if I've been mispronouncing it for the last 15 years, that... You, that, you say scienter? Scienter? I feel like Tom Fox in Texas could go long on this because you guys say some crazy things down there. You have like more dire. And, so I think it all, <laughs> it's all fine. How do they say it in Texas, Tom? I enter. Oh, okay. There you go. My high school Latin teacher is going to roll over and die. After <laughs> even you and F, or maybe me, I don't know. We have to emphasize the first syllable of every word why it's called insurance. So, Karen, you and I have over the years have talked about cases where bad facts make bad law. And I think the last one we touched on that topic was extension of Caremark doctrine to officers and directors. Is that what we have here? Because if this case does succeed, every corporation says a lawsuit's without merit until it is. Right. Yeah, I think this that's fair. I think that what they have him on is this acknowledgement that there was enough to show he didn't believe that statement when he made it. And there have been a number of Supreme Court cases, Omnicare, and ones that seem like nonsensical. Like what does it mean to know these things? And is that just an opinion? If it's opinion, you're in the clear. I even teach students, like, you have to put a little CYA clause. I'm like, as far as I know, or I believe this. And then that's it the burden a little bit. 
And so to just come out and forcefully say this has no merit as a fact puts you in a little bit of a different space, especially when you can point the documents. The plaintiffs have enough to show you didn't believe that when you said it. And that then makes that that's the problem. And that's now material misrepresentation with knowing that it's misrepresentation. I think actually it's the different aphorism here, which is that these are good facts to make law that <laughs> like I actually do think this is a factual analysis on these and these facts here they hold up. All right. Jay Rosen, we have had some very interesting commentary both in the United States from a federal district judge and from the United Kingdom around an international anti-corruption court. Where do you see the, the debate or the discussion on this? And is this something that actually could move forward? Yeah, I'm going to focus on the U.S. angle here. And we're going to look at why a federal judge in Boston is pushing for this international anti-corruption court. There's something very intriguing about seeing former President Donald Trump arraigned in court week after week. And it shows that no one is above the law. There are many countries where such a spectacle would be unthinkable, where heads of state can never be removed from office, much less prosecuted, no matter how many laws they break. And that's where Mark L. Wolf, a, a genial former federal prosecutor who is now a senior federal judge in Boston, is leading a crusade along with other distinguished jurists to establish an international anti-corruption court, for short, the acronym IAC, that would hold kleptocrats to account when national courts fail to do so. While the existing internal criminal court addresses war crimes, the IACC would tackle grand corruption perpetrated by ruling elites across the world with costs estimated up to a trillion dollars. So why would a court be necessary? If you want to know that toll, the toll that corruption can take on a country, just look at Transparency International's list of countries that are perceived to be the most and least corrupt in the world. In this survey for last year in 2022, the least corrupt nations involved wealthy liberal democracies such as Denmark, Finland, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, and the Netherlands. Singapore was the only autocracy to make the top 10. The bottom of these rankings are full of impoverished basket nations such as Somalia, Syria, South Sudan, Venezuela, Yemen, Libya, North Korea, and Haiti. The effects of corruption spill out across borders in the form of refugee flows, environmental depressions, and criminal rackets, even military aggression. Russia's invasion of Ukraine was launched by a corrupt clique that created the mafia state that now wants to loot Ukraine's resources. The United States experienced the corrosive effect of corruption in both the Iraq and Afghanistan, where the theft of U.S. aid spending undercuts efforts to fight military extremists. In Iraq alone, corruption is estimated to have cost the government $150 billion to $300 billion since 2003. All of that money should have been used to provide vital services for the people of these war-torn countries. Instead, much of it wound up in federal bank accounts, thereby doing grave damage to the government's standing with its own people. It's not just the fight against extreme violent extremism that's happened, hampered by corruption. So it's now fighting global warming. As the World Bank study noted, corrupt countries are often major polluters because there's so much money to be made by ruthlessly extracting mineral resources or clear-cutting for forests. 
The very fact that grand corruption is so lucrative makes it hard to combat. Government officials who benefit from the theft of state resources usually have the power to prevent prosecutors and judges from interfering with their criminal activities. Bill Browder, a British-based investigator who supports the creation of the IA, found that out for himself when he tried to expose the looting of his companies in Russia. His lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, died in prison and Browder has to spend the rest of his life looking over his shoulder if there's a bullet with his name on it. Enter Judge Wolf with his idea. It was first broached back in 2014 for an international anti-corruption court that can investigate corruption cases that national courts are either unwilling or unable to pursue. It's an axiomatic that keeps kleptocrat that kleptocrats will never allow their countries to join the court says Wolf, who chairs the Integrity Initiatives International. But kleptocrats don't keep much of their illicit wealth on their own countries. Jurisdictions such as Switzerland, Britain, Luxembourg, Panama, and even the United States have become favored havens for foreign leaders and oligarchs to launch their stolen proceeds, or rather launder. In some cases, even democratic governments are willing to delve too deeply into these shady assets because so many of their own citizens benefit. And even if local prosecutors want to launch investigations, they're often hampered by the transnational nature of these crimes and the immunity that sitting heads of government enjoy from prosecution. Wolf points out that heads of states don't have immunity in international courts. That's why the international courts have been able to pursue cases against leaders of countries from Sudan to Serbia who have been accused of war crimes. The IAC would be able to do the same for foreign leaders, such as Vladimir Putin or Belarus's Alexander Lushenko, who have been accused of grand corruption. Wolf says the idea of creating the IACC is picking up momentum. It's being championed by Canada and the Netherlands, and it's even been endorsed by more than 50 former presidents and prime ministers. Other supporters include Colombia, Ecuador, Moldova, and Nigeria. The British Labour Party, which is favored to win the next election, just endorsed the court too. Strangely, however, the Biden administration has not joined the campaign. It's really vexing and utterly illogical, Wolf says, pointing out that President Biden himself has said that corruption is a risk for our national security, and we must recognize it as such. Wolf describes the administration's position to the general U.S. hostility to international tribunals. Washington, for example, has not joined the International Criminal Court. But there are good reasons for Biden, a committed internationalist, to reconsider. Given that his opponent in next year's election is likely to be the first indicted former president in U.S. history, supporting the IAC would be a way for him to highlight the importance of prosecuting criminals in high office. And it could deflect dubious GOP attacks on his own integrity. In the future, the United States, if in the future the United States were to join, the IAC could even investigate former U.S. presidents or senior leaders so as to remove any taint of politics from the process. Wolf believes that the IAC could be created by a relatively few nations as long as they represent a cross-section of regions and include major financial centers where money laundering takes place. It's high time for the world, including the United States, to get behind this important initiative. 
Corruption exacts a terrible toll, and although the IAC will hardly be a magical solution for this pervasive problem, it will add another important tool to the struggle to uphold the rule of law and fight back against crooked tyrants. Thank you, Jay. So one of the topics I think that has percolated throughout this episode has been key issues facing auditors. So, Mr. Marks, we're going to ask you to either comment, portend, or defend an entire profession. What do you see as some of the key issue facing you and your brethren? I think we talked a little bit about this before, but obviously the changing landscape makes it much more difficult for the auditors to get their hands around a lot of the different issues. I also think talent was a big deal. I think there were some studies that I read that 90% of the firms out there are struggling for talent. I think doing a risk assessment, understanding client acceptance and continuous continuation becomes an issue. Using technology as audit evidence and things like that, evaluating data certainly becomes an issue. So technology comes into play. I believe that skepticism and bias also in this environment, a lot more pressure on folks to, to get things done. I can go on and on all day, but I think some of the things that we're talking about, specifically the fact that related to the amount of pressure, Matt was talking about having conversations with several audit partners that the game is really changing. Not having that level of talent, not having that level of understanding, having companies that don't provide the level of transparency becomes a big risk. And I don't know, I don't know what the right answers are here. I do know that fundamentally that we need to stick with the blocking and tackling that's been put forth by some of the professional practices groups. And I think a big part of that goes to maintaining the proper level of professional skepticism and making sure that good audit evidence exists. And to do that, I think that whole process amongst all of us is changing right before us. And so I think there's a lot of nervousness nervousness and consternation around that process all in itself. But I think talent, I don't know if you guys know this, but there's the 150-hour requirement to get your CPA. A lot of people can't afford to go to school for five years. So a lot of people are not entering the accounting profession and taking their CPA exams. I think the AICPA and others or other professional groups are addressing that. I think that's a real issue. I think moving away from the experience requirement to get your CPA is also maybe a little bit of an issue. These are just my opinions, but I remember when I started in this profession more than 35 years ago and the amount of information that was put on me as a newbie to really understand and get my arms around. I can only imagine what the situation is like today when you enter into this profession. And more, again, from a partner level perspective and from a professional practices perspective, there's so many different things that have really just changed the overall risk landscape that getting your arms around it becomes much more difficult. And then there's the old adage of, we're not going to pay for this, you know, and then really what happens? Is it a cost? Thing? Is it not a cost thing? Are we giving the investors the right level of comfort and protection that they require in order to make informed decisions? I think there's a, I think this is one of those things where we can have our own separate podcast and our own separate show and talk five hours about each and every one of those issues. And I guarantee you we can fill airspace for that entire time. But I do think based on what's happened and what's happening now and the regulatory landscape and the economy and what happened with the pandemic, there's a lot of things that there's a confluence of events that have taken place that has really put a lot of pressure on the audit firms and the auditors themselves. And it'd be interesting to see what happens. The one thing that I think that nobody 
think very few people are talking about, which I would generally like to bring up, is the mental health and the stress that are placed on auditors these days. I don't think that people are really considering that. What does it take for somebody to really snap as a result of all this? I think, Matt, that probably goes back to some of your conversations with those folks. Just the amount of stress, knowing that you're putting and signing your name to something and you could be you know, individually responsible. There's a great deal of stress and strain that goes along with that. So I am not surprised that we're talking about this. I think it's a good conversation to have. But I don't think there's any one right or wrong answer. I think this is one of those things, like I said, that we're going to have to continue as a profession to talk through these issues and figure out how to best get through them. And I think that uh, there's a lot of firms out there that are trying to do the right thing, but just it's not a there's not an instant fix to any of this. And I just think that with the change of accounting, like revenue recognition changed, the standards for revenue recognition changed. There's a lot of other new pronouncements that are out there. You have the PCAOB now putting more demands on the auditors. You have the talent, the war on talent, the war on retaining people, the fact that people aren't coming into the profession, the risk landscape, all those other things that I mentioned. It really creates a recipe for ugliness. And I just think we need to talk through this. But I don't know. There's no right or wrong answer here. I just think that it's going to take some time to to work through all this and get to a place where everybody feels comfortable. Matt, do you have a question or comment for Jonathan? Just a comment, because I think that he touched on a lot of really good points. I guess my bigger concern is that we, the collective society of the United States and probably other countries as well, I don't know that we have the right sort of legal and business operating framework for audit firms anymore. If you go back to the NOCLAR proposal, if auditors are going to act like lawyers couldn't or shouldn't audit firms really, say, merge with a law firm. But if you merge with a law firm, does that mean that you have attorney-client privilege with your client company now, which might be news to the outside counsel that the company usually uses? Or one person who told me that this NOCLAR proposal is not that big of a deal made the argument that a SOX violation, a cybersecurity violation, a privacy violation They're all the same thing because they're about access control. Somebody somewhere got access to data that they should not have gotten to. So that's what auditors should keep in mind. I buy that in theory, but are therefore, are we going to start educating undergrads majoring in accounting about proper IT and access control and what that looks like? Because that's what you'd need to know. And that's not what they teach accounting students. So... I do wonder about the various groups and state laws and legal principles that undergird legal representation and accounting and the audit client relationship. Like, I don't know that they're fit for purpose anymore when we talk about what the real risks are that people worry about. And I don't know what the solution is either, but it looks to me like right now, the framework that supports all this, it's bent out of shape. Yeah. And I think the one thing that the one thing that always resonates with me and it always has since I started in this profession, is the reputational risk. In 1988, you can contain a crisis. Today, that containing a crisis, it could spread like wildfire. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just mean that it just burns fast. And you know, once that information gets out, if you're not able to control it, it can get very ugly. I think that, again, I think the times have changed. And I think the way that things all the points that you made are certainly extremely valid. The, there are, there was, there has been conversations about 
the legal aspect of things. And always as an auditor, we were taught that we need to understand the law, but we couldn't practice law. You know what I'm saying? So there's a fine line there. But I think, again, I think it goes back to having the right level of skill sets on these teams. The, some of the things that we talked about before, the training in college, certainly in the universities and colleges, I think that needs to be looked at as well. But I also think fundamentally, you need to go back and figure out why people aren't entering the profession anymore. And we need good people in this profession. There's, we can't operate without good people. And I think that's fundamentally, that's going to be one of those issues that it's not going to be solved overnight. So the repercussions and the, and the damage could be around for a while. I just hope that we continue to have these conversations and people continue to at least try to get in front of these things like they have been. I, again, I think the motivations are probably in line. We're trying to protect the investors. We're trying to protect others. I think those things are appropriate. But again, I think it needs to be an evolution, not a revolution. And I think creating a revolution is really going to scare a lot of different people unnecessarily. In in most instances, I do think that there's, again, this is a giant risk play. There are some clients out there, some companies that are greater risk than others for various and sundry reasons. So maybe the answer is to go back and revisit and re-bucketize those clients that have higher and greater risk and revisit what needs to be done there. But it's certainly it's certainly an interesting discussion. And I think all the points that are being made are good ones. Karen, do you have any thoughts from the academic perspective? No, I was just going to jump in because before I taught at law school, I taught business school at Indiana. And my courses often were to the master's of accounting students. So people who are about to take their CPA exam and ordinate amount of like material they need to know. It makes the bar exam look nothing. I was shocked at how much they had to know. And then adding on to it, to your point, adding on to that, this additional stress of the potential liability, like this is just, just still piling on. I think you're right. That might deter certain people from going into the profession at all. Or to Matt's point, maybe is an encouragement for people to leave earlier than maybe they should. And so I, I think that's a valid thing. And I also just this morning was talking to students about something it was about the red flags or the signal it sends if you maybe switch auditors. And so when auditing firms maybe are not willing to take on things, like is that going to have a repercussion even in maybe in the markets about the signals of various firms dumping or switching auditors for other reasons than maybe historically they have. So I think it could have some other collateral consequences. No, I think those are great points. As compared to opinion shopping, maybe one firm's more equipped to assess risk because of the depth and breadth of knowledge or the special that they have specialty that they have in that particular industry or that space that they operate in. I think those are all extremely valid points. But again, we all know the stigmatism that comes with jumping from one audit firm to another. Again, I think that those are the types of things that the profession needs to get out in front of. All right. We are to our fan favorites. Yes. Shout outs and rants. I'm going to keep the same order. So we'll have Matt, Karen, Jay, Mr. Marks, and I will come in batting fifth. Matt, do you have a shout out and a rant for us today? I'm going to go a bit off pattern here. I just wanted to offer a quick follow-up to a subject that I discussed, I think one or two podcasts ago, the scandal and the questions around Francesca Gino at Harvard University. She is the business ethics professor who had been accused of falsifying her research data, which compliance officers have quoted far and yon for years now in their own presentations and predicated their compliance policies based on her work. And in my last podcast, I think I talked about how a group of academics calling themselves data colada 
had published a really blistering critique of her work and basically accused Miss Gino of falsifying her data. In fairness to Miss Gina, I wanted to circle back to that, that the other week, she finally broke her silence on this and has filed a lawsuit against Harvard University and the three academics who make up Data Colada, accusing the university and them of basically wrongful termination and sex discrimination. And her complaint, which goes into painstaking detail, is certainly is not a good look for either Data Colada or Harvard University, basically accuses the Harvard Business School of conspiring with the Data Colada people who apparently went very quietly to Harvard Business School and said, we have this research here that you might want to look at, but we're not going to share it with you unless you open an investigation into Ms. Gina and then share the results of that investigation with us privately, and then we'll publish our work which is not cool. That certainly smells very fishy to me. And then, according to Ms. Gina, Ms. Gino, the university also came up with a research compliance policy solely for her that they did not disclose to anyone else, did not inform Ms. Gino about the nature of this policy until after they had done their investigation, which basically was designed to paint her as guilty and then force her to resign. And she is on long-term leave from the university and is basically no longer affiliated with them. I am not sure if it is entirely appropriate to say she is fired or resigned, but we will just say she's not a teacher at Harvard Business School anymore. I don't know what the truth is yet. I don't know when we will see that. I don't know what might come of this lawsuit. But in fairness to Ms. Gino, I just wanted to make sure that we all had her side of the story out there as well. I still will say what I said the first time we talked about this is that to a certain extent, for most compliance officers, the correct question to ask here is who cares? Because they're quibbling over her research. And I get that's important to Ms. Gino. But for compliance officers, we still have to say that behavioral ethics matters. It is an important thing. And even though there might be questions about one particular academic's research into this field, that doesn't mean that we chuck behavioral ethics out the window and just stick with rote, airtight, hard compliance controls governing every aspect of a worker's life. So that's all I wanted to say this week about that, just to make sure that Ms. Gina has or Ms. Gino has her fair due, that she's a very different take on what is happening here, and that is worth people paying attention to as well. Karen Woody, do you have a shout-out and or rant for us? I have a shout-out. I'm a little disappointed that Jonathan is not on the call from London, but my shout-out was to what I've been watching a lot this summer, which is the Women's World Cup. So I'm going to shout-out to the beautiful game, and mostly that this has really felt like a not an imbalanced tournament. So the shout-out is really to this idea that it was so wonderful to watch countries that maybe don't usually mount teams that are as competitive, but they felt like a balanced number of teams There weren't that many total blowouts, or actually, if there was a blowout, that team ended up winning the next game when they were in a larger round. I I was just impressed that this is really a true global sport that women can make a career out of, and I feel like this is one of the few times it's been so evident that that's not just for a handful of countries, but a number of people really have impressive skills and have the ability to show them. Other than the disappointment of Jonathan's team being in the final... (laughs) And so we do have a sort of a classic final. But other than that, I thought it was so impressive to see just such an incredible showing from so many different countries. Jay Rosa, do you have a shout out and or rant for us? 
I have a shout out and I'm surprised I'm doing this. I'm tagging along with Karen and her her ode to the beautiful game. And my shout out, believe it or not, is going to go to PK's penalty kicks. And if you don't put the ball in the back of the net, you can't advance to the next round USA. So I felt really disheartened about that. But when I replayed in my mind the penalty kick sequence, and first of all, we stopped one of them, so we're up by one. And then that whole game is crammed into those two to three minutes. And it's a lot of pressure, but I used to say, oh, this isn't a real sport. It gets ties. You have to do it this way. But if you look at U.S. sports, you have to go into overtime for hockey or for basketball, baseball, you play it. This is probably the best solution to a sticky wicket. I like that. That's something for Jonathan. But I'm a big fan of the penalty kick. I hope the World Cup is not decided by them. But here's to you and the beautiful game. Mr. Marks, do you have a shout out and or rant for us? Yeah, I'm going to shout out to a fruit and a baseball. And the combination of the two, which they call the Savannah Bananas. And if you haven't seen these, cat, I encourage you to go see them. They started in 2016, and they've really changed the way you can actually have fun at a baseball game. Not that baseball isn't fun for us purists, but it's a very interesting twist, much like when I grew up with watching the Harlem Globetrotters play the Washington Generals. It's a little bit of a circus, but I think it's a whole lot of fun. I think every one of the guys and certainly the ownership of the team should be commended because they really do make, they put some entertainment in the game of baseball. I hope there's some bleed over to the traditionalists that just love the game, but I find them extremely entertaining and I encourage everybody out there to go see them. It's a great show. I have two shout outs. The first one is to Judge Karen Seeley. Judge Seeley sits as a trial court judge in the great state of Montana, and she found that the state of Montana's prohibition of the Montana Environmental Commission's ability to investigate or even measure greenhouse gases violated the Montana Constitution, which reads, all persons are born free and have certain inalienable rights. Those include the right to a clean and healthful environment. Also, the state and each person shall maintain and improve a clean and healthful environment in Montana for present and future generations. That language came from the 1972 Montana Constitution. This is the first time a U.S. trial judge or any U.S. judge has found a constitutional right to a clean environment. Now, this may be limited to the great state of Montana. It may be overturned on appeal, but we now have precedent. The second shout out is for a book, Level Up and a friend, Mary Shirley. Mary published her first solo author book, Level Up, this week. So I want to shout out to Mary Shirley. The compliance community has some great books coming out. Christy Grant Hart has a book coming out. I've got another book coming out. And the number of books by compliance practitioners and professionals continues to increase. But shout out to Mary. Get a copy of Level Up. I've read it. It's got some great tips for you. Lady and gentlemen, with that concludes this episode. Thanks, everyone. And I look forward to a great fall season. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever great podcasts are listened to. 
I've linked to all of the topics we touched upon in this episode in the show notes. So if you'd like additional information, I would urge you to check out uh, the reports, articles, and press releases regarding the topics from today's podcast. The gang will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode, so I hope you'll plan to join us again. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. The Compliance Podcast Network recently won five Communicator Awards, so I hope you will check out some of the award-winning podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, including Data-Driven Compliance, The Coming Conflict with China, Never the Same, How Business Changed Forever from the Russian Invasion of Ukraine, and The Night Sky, Two Eclipses Coming to Kerrville, Texas. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again.
This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Have you ever wondered if you could join the Compliance Podcast Network? We had some great new additions in 2022. And if you'd like to consider that or just talk to me about what it might take for you to start a podcast, I'd love to talk to you. We're always looking for new podcasts for the Compliance Podcast Network, the only network for podcasters in the compliance space. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks when we have the full Everything Compliance gang back again. I'd also like to shout out to my colleague Gwen Hassan. Gwen started the Hidden Traffic podcast about human trafficking, modern slavery, and issues surrounding those imbroglios that many companies find themselves in. Gwen not only won several awards in her first year as a podcaster, but she actually had the top two podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network for 2023. So congratulations, Gwen, and keep up the great work. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.